0: Welcome to Healing and Horsemanship, a podcast exploring the many healing paths we walk with horses. I'm your host, Shannon Ray Riley of Wild Whaling Therapeutics and Training. This show is supported by The Herd. The Herd offers monthly bonuses for members, including access to a growing content library on all things health, wellness, and horses. For more on membership, visit wildwhaling.com slash podcast. Thank you for joining me on this wild ride. And now, on to the show. Hey. everyone. Welcome back to Healing and Horsemanship. I'm your host, Shannon Ray. Today, the day that I'm recording this, is Sunday, February 19th, and I just got an alert from my calendar that today is a new moon, which is very exciting to me as just this year I updated my whole 2023 calendar with the moon cycle. And in the years past, I've paid some attention to the moon phases, but I honestly, I guess, am not as in tune with nature as I'd hoped to be because it would just surprise me when I'd look out at night and see a full moon. And I've heard a lot of people say over the years how it's important to align yourself with nature's rhythms because the moon cycle actually has a pretty big influence on our energy. And this is going to get pretty woo-woo here for a second, I guess, if you're not already tuned into this. But I've just been learning how even farmers acknowledge the importance of working with the moon cycle and how the potent of their plants or their herbs will have the potency is different depending on when you harvest. So, based on what I've learned, the new moon is a great time to start new projects. Easy to remember, right? But it's sort of a time of building energy. And naturally, as the new moon to full moon cycle begins, you're getting this natural rising of energy or expansion of energy. So, you just can kind of ride that wave. Whereas, if you start something on the full moon, then natural rhythm is going to pull you. Deeper into sort of slowing down your energy, almost going into hibernation as you reflect and look within. So I think if we can take advantage of that full moon to new moon cycle to look within, to reassess and reflect, then we can be ready to just blossom on the new moon with whatever creative idea we've had whatever we've been planning for who knows how long. So today I was just really happy to get that notification that I'm finally sitting down to record this episode, which usually I record them a good week or two in advance. So I have plenty of time to just chip away at editing them. And with a toddler, (laughs) that is very important to give myself ample time, more time than I think I need to complete something nowadays, but it's just been such a crazy month so far, so I really haven't had time to get down here, and it's pretty early in the morning, and my husband's with the baby, so I could sneak away and get this recorded, but now I'm realizing I sort of just set myself up for that perfect timing based on the new moon's rhythm. So enough about that for now. We can talk about moons later, and if you want to dive in, please let me know because I'd love to nerd out about that more. But today's episode is actually going to be about emotional intelligence. So there are so many rabbit holes we could go down talking about emotional intelligence, but just to give you a little overview for now, I'm mainly going to concentrate on how horses teach us about emotional intelligence, why the overculture does not acknowledge the importance of it, and I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty. I have a little bit bit of a scientific tick in my brain where I want to see how people are proving something, but I almost get upset when I think about how we need the scientific validation to know that something's real because my whole life I've just had such a strong intuitive experience and I think that's given my interactions with horses my whole life. So I get sort of irked when people need to see the proof in terms of data or something on paper that they can read versus something they experience in their body. So today, I'm really going to be talking about experiences I've had, which have proven this so profoundly to me and experiences I've seen in others. And then how it's going to be tied in to future episodes where I'll talk about how the elements play a vital role in our constitution. I'm going to get into what I call emotional body language and how the elements have affinities with certain tissues in our body and they govern emotions. Our Our whole body, every organ, every tissue, according to Ayurveda, is associated with different emotions. And so we all innately express emotions as humans and as animals, and so if somebody wants to insist that animals don't feel emotions, I am beyond trying to defend the emotional lives of animals at this point, and now I'm just looking at that person, and I'm seeing how they have denied and suppressed their own emotions for so long that, of course, it makes sense that they could not understand how a animals, beings they see as lesser than potentially have emotions. So that was a pretty lengthy intro. So first let's, I guess, dissect what I mean by emotional intelligence. That is similar to how we define mental intelligence. That is our ability to feel, acknowledge, reflect, and digest our emotions. So just like mental intelligence is somebody's ability to understand, Rationalize, problem solve, and cognitively know something is true. Our emotional intelligence is our ability for our body to know something is true because it's in our felt sense. It's something that we're experiencing. I almost hate using the word intelligence because it seems like a measurable phenomenon where some people are more intelligent than others and so by extension you're calling some people, quote, dumb. I don't think anyone is emotionally unintelligent. I think innately. Think about babies. I mean, they're expressing such a vast range of emotions. They could be uncomfortable, they could be hungry, they could be upset, they could be scared. They're expressing so much and we could read their reaction of it as unintelligent compared to us as adults. When we experience an emotion, we can talk it out, we can address it, we can display really subtle responses and reactions to it, but I think as babies, we are so much more wise about our emotions because there's no, there's no hesitation from feeling it to expressing it, Whereas as adults, we stuff it so deeply down and we get ourselves into a lot of trouble by doing so. So, our culture places so much importance and value on mental intelligence that we see this hierarchy happening. <laughs> We see an anthropocentric view, with humans at the top of the pyramid as top predators, and we see all other animals as just being slaves to their natural instincts, and how they couldn't rise above and unlock more rational thinking. But I think ultimately, we as humans, just by putting ourselves at the top of a pyramid, we enslave ourselves to this idea that we have to be civilized that we have to be reigning in our impulses. And yes, that's <laughs> that's important just to be existing in a society to not be temperamentally just expressing every wild impulse. You know, there are rules that we abide by, and sometimes we have to dance around other people's feelings, too. But the problem is when we don't address our own emotions at all or we just shut them off. We shut them off and we refuse to look at them. And then I think we lose the ability to actually name them. And then anytime we feel any kind of emotion, we go cold. We dissociate. And it's usually because some trauma happens where we cannot possibly process all of the emotions, we're just overwhelmed by all at once. So shock takes over to allow us to survive and not overwhelm our nervous system anymore when we're just in a fighting for our life reaction. But Over time, as our body thaws out, and the work of Peter Levine really shows us this in somatic, oh, what is his work called? Somatic therapy or counseling? The work of Peter Levine really shows us this because to unwind trauma, we have to let our body feel all of those feelings. Because if we just dissociate and compartmentalize, that trauma will wreak havoc on our nervous systems, on our emotions, on our everything. our body our mind so horses what do they do when they feel fear they run they might bolt they might kick they might strike they might bite but we see that fear is driving them because they're afraid for their life what do horses do when they experience calm their head lowers. their eyes blink their nostrils expand they yawn they lick and chew Their tail relaxes. What do we as humans do when we feel fear? (laughs) Well, often, I feel that we just shut it down. We go rigid. We become so tense, but it's almost like that deer in the headlights look, that we don't know what's happening, and so we're just going to pretend everything is okay right now. So let me give you a very personal example. During my childhood, there were pretty big traumas that occurred, and horses were my outlet. As I mentioned in episode one, horses really saved me from going down a destructive path, but I was still dissociating. I was still not in my body period it took a long time for me to even want to be in my body but i will say that horses spending time with them was the only time during my childhood and you know up into my early 20s being around horses was the only time that I felt truly safe in my body and that I could ground. I could feel my fingers, I could feel my toes, and my whole body and mind were working harmoniously. But when I was at home, when I was at school, I would find myself staring out the window, staring at the wall, at the ceiling, staring at the TV for hours. I would draw a lot and I would make art and a lot of it was really dark and that should have been my first red flag that I was not okay, but I guess I thought that I had my life together because I was getting good grades, I had a passion and a purpose, I had love in my life because I loved being around horses, but I was not truly okay. So flash forward to when I started my ayurveda clinical program in 2012 so there are three parts of the program one is ayurveda theory the other one is aromatherapy and nutrition and the last one is bodywork and the entire beginning of that program i remember i was kind of dreading the bodywork part because i just didn't i was not a very touchy feely person I had this idea about massage as being like, oh, you have to touch people's bodies and oh, like boundaries. Anyways, I just, I I was not interested in the bodywork. I thought it was just going to be something I would have to get through. And so when we started, we had a lot of body workers in that class. There were probably 30 of us. And when my teacher started introducing us to body work practices and methods in Ayurveda, We'd go over theory, and then she divided three massage tables up and had one student on each, and we would spend the latter half of class just with eight of us working on one person. And it was pretty amazing. It was slowly opening my eyes, seeing people's reactions to the bodywork. A lot of people would break down on the massage table. We would go deep, not only, not just like deep tissue, but lymphatic drainage, excreting organs. Working on the psoas in that bodywork portion because I was not a body worker nor was I interested in it. I would usually just massage the person's feet, <laughs> and it was funny. I would go to the feet because the other students in class knew what they were doing. More, they were like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna work on this torso. Oh, I'm gonna work on the neck." And I'd be like, okay, I'm going to just hold down the fort at the feet. I can massage some toes. <laughs> I can do pressure points. And I honestly just wanted to like keep people grounded, which is funny because I was the opposite of grounded. So when it finally came my turn, I was so nervous and almost dreading it. But I honestly had no idea where we would go, what would happen, and so the first part of the massage felt like, oh yeah, they're really gua shaing my back, they're really stirring up some circulation. You know, eight people working on one person, like you're not just gonna do the Swedish like light flowing movement. <laughs> you're gonna have some layers that you can really access and unlock. So. As they were gua me, I almost felt like I was face down and I felt like they were digging, digging into my layers. And I just heard this voice in my head and it like overwhelmed me because it came out of nowhere, but it came as I felt like they were digging into the depths of me. And I heard the voice say, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. And I just broke down sobbing (laughs) and I heard someone go, oh, is she crying? And they all just stopped and like held hands on supporting. And I couldn't even be mortified that I was sobbing. I was surprised myself by my own reaction later, but in the moment I was sobbing because I'd heard that voice before and I knew it had been with me for a long time. I remember drawing as a teenager, my little dark artwork, I would write, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. I would write it sometimes thousands of times. I just felt like my soul was not in my body. And that bodywork session, oh my god, it blew me away. It changed everything for me. It started the path that I'm on and... Ultimately, it made me want to become a body worker because I watched these really radical transformations and I saw how, you know, through nutrition, through herbal remedies, through Ayurvedic pulse assessment, you could really help people reflect on what's going on in their body and get to the root cause. But it felt like almost talk therapy, like you could go down the rabbit hole and have someone explain to you their life story or even touch on a trauma that they've experienced, but until you have hands on a body and you can allow that person, you can facilitate them to experience that that emotion is still trapped in that tissue, I feel like you're stuck So this brings me to how we process emotions. So I'm going to touch on a little bit of elemental theory in Ayurveda. And then in another episode, I promise I will break this all down and go deeper into our constitutions. So in Ayurveda, the five elements are acknowledged as ether, which is open space, air, fire, water, and earth. So ether, air, fire, water, earth. And there's sort of a creation myth, which I'm sure I'm going to botch, and I'll try to link in an accurate retelling. But so there's an understanding in Ayurvedic philosophy that the creation of the universe, it started with just open space. It started with the open universe that we can picture when we picture space. And I don't know how, but somehow, someday, wind came into this open spacious world of ether and wind started moving things and then wind created friction and that friction created heat and that heat created a flame and that flame began to dissolve transform assimilate certain aspects that were already present in this spacious now moving world and that became water and water trickling down, nourishing life-created earth. And so, that's how they look at the cycle of the elements and their role in the body. So, everything starts with ether. And the way that I was taught this by my teacher, ether can be looked at as an idea, an inspiration. And inspiration is linked to spirit world, right? So, ultimately, ether... represent spirit the soul and so we get an idea we get an inspiration on the positive end or let's say we're in survival mode we get a feeling we get the chills we get this energy flowing over us it just hits us like a ton of bricks this little feeling this ether sets in motion a cascade of events so ether is the start the inkling, the energy, and then air moves it through our body. So, we can think of air, of course, as movement, but also as we have an emotion. We have a change that's occurring, and then it creates, through that motion, friction. So, we're back to fire. Fire can be destructive. It can be the most destructive element, but it can also transform So, if we experience this energy turned into emotion, and let's say we acknowledge it, thank it for what it's telling us, and then we toss it to the flames, we allow it to be burnt into embers and then be sent back up into the sky, we're done with that emotion, thank you for what you told us, now you can float on away. But, let's say in survival mode, that emotion has overwhelmed us and so it rather gets transformed into water it trickles down we're not ready to deal with it it can't be transformed by the flame so let's say we experience a deep fear and we're in survival mode our fire cannot transform that fear into something that can move on we're like nope we take hold of that fear we're gonna store it away later water becomes earth that's now stored in our sacrum in our roots in our colon in the root chakra that is responsible for survival for deep biological needs for protection for grounding for feeling safe i want to point out too that for women our uterus is called our compass and they say that long-term emotions or emotions that were unable to resolve or process, they go down to the uterus for long-term storage, similar to how our cervix remembers everything. It's the sacred timekeeper of our body. (laughs) It remembers everything that we've ever experienced. Well, our uterus, our compass, remembers everything that we felt to, and it will store things that we're not capable of resolving sort of in that Survival fear. By the body sending things down in that direction, by the cascade from ether to earth, the body's trying to process, to push it out. So let's say you catch an emotion early on, you catch that energetic vibe. It's a vibe, let's be real. And then you name it, you set it free. It doesn't have to transform into something physical in your body or be stored long term. It's gone. Great. You are reflecting on yourself. You are in tune with your emotional intelligence. That's what it is. It's almost like if we cannot let something go, give it back up to spirit, give it back up to ether, then the body's gonna go, all right, let me take hold of this. I will send it through (laughs) the cascade. I will send it down to earth. We'll bury it. We're gonna bury it one day. But if we're constantly in survival mode, and the way that I also put this, if we're constantly dealing with challenges, we're putting out fires, we can never circle back around to that one original thing that happened to us that still haunts us, that still hurts us. We're just like, oh crap. Now there's something else for me to deal with. Here we go. Oh gosh, we appreciate dog sounds here. That was my cutie pie on the couch behind me. If you heard that little stretch? <laughs> so dogs and horses... They cannot afford to send things down to the root, to their physical body, unless they're in a constant sort of fight for survival. If they're constantly having to put out more fires, but the moment that we turn them loose, let them reflect, I feel that they're so much more in tune with their emotions than we are that they can process that shit, let it go. But sometimes it takes hands on the body. Sometimes it takes insisting that they're safe. We've got them. They can process this, but sometimes it also really just takes us not putting more shit on them. And the other day I saw a post on Instagram and I wanted to comment and I held myself back. And so now I'm holding on to this energy that transformed into this negative feeling. And I'm like sitting with this, but I just wanted to share. It was a post about how horses benefit us, how they benefit our mental health. And the first thing that it mentioned was how horses leech from us, how they leech negative energy. Yes, they do leech negative energy, but us acknowledging that without also handing the responsibility over to say, horses do this naturally for us. How are we leeching their negative energy? Or how are we disposing of our crap before just giving it to them? Like, are we going to allow ourselves to be so emotionally numb that we just show up at the barn, we go over and hang out with the horse, or we go and work with them, and we're like, oh, yay, I feel better at the end of that. That horse really just, like, you know, allowed me an outlet for my emotions, and this is what I did all through growing up. This is what I did, (laughs) and I will say I still feel guilty for it in ways, Because the horse that I learned this with carried so much for me. The dog that I learned this with carried so much for me. And I didn't understand how to regulate my own emotions until going through that clinical program. Until hearing that inner voice that I'd conjured through those long-held emotions. And so, if we don't practice some kind of self-care, guys, this is why the podcast is called Healing and Horsemanship, because I believe that horses fundamentally take us to those places, take us to the edges. We could only be focused on training, but they are <laughs> they are the space holders. They're going to nudge us in that direction, or they're going to drag us there, <laughs> kicking and screaming, perhaps and yeah, physically they do drag us places sometimes, but if we're not reflecting on our emotions, then chances are a storm is brewing, which the horse is going to enact, because if we're so dissociating from our emotions, then how do we process the fear that we might feel if we get into the saddle one day, and we're not supposed to be in that saddle, and the horse knows it, but we don't know it, because we're not listening to our emotions. Have you ever had that happen? I sure have (laughs) multiple times. I still have a hip injury from all the times that I've fallen off as a kid getting launched into the air, and I always fell on my butt. And I always felt really proud of that. But guess what? Now it's affecting my root long term, and that's where I held all those emotions. So I guess it's kind of funny. That's where I have my emotional scarring, and that's where I have my actual physical scarring that I need to work on. (laughs) But. Let me just tell you a story about the time that I got in the saddle when I shouldn't have. And my mare was telling me that it was a cold, it was a dark, cold, and stormy day. It felt like rain clouds overhead. It was really windy. And I was the only person out at the ranch. In this area of the ranch, someone showed up later when I was riding and she was working with her Mustang kind of on the other side of the property, which was not huge, so she could vaguely see me and she could hear me. But so I got on my horse and I was in a saddle, but I had no halter, no bridle, no hackamore, no nothing on her head. I had a Pirelli Savvy string tied around her neck and I had a carrot stick <laughs> because I was trying to practice my bridalist riding. And so, of course, this dark and stormy evening. My horse spooked at something, I pulled back on the string around her neck, but she just kept going because she was terrified for her life, (laughs) she was terrified for me, more than likely, and I went around this big arena with her, at least we were in a fenced area, we went around at least eight times before I bailed, but I just remember she would bolt At a full tilt gallop down each long side of the arena. And then coming around the corner, she would kind of skid, bolt again down the short side, skid. And then every long side, I just like grew a big pit in my stomach. I'm just being jerked around, going along for the ride. Luckily, I was wearing a helmet. But eventually, I think I started screaming at Jazzy to slow down. And then I lost all patience, and then I lost my breath. But I remember screaming for help, and the other person there ran up. But she got there by the time that I bailed, because all of my efforts were in vain trying to stop her, and I shouldn't have been on in the first place. I should have stopped myself. But what happened was, when I bailed, I had so much momentum that I basically skidded on my back for a good bit. There was all this sand in my helmet. Luckily, I was fine. No concussion, no injury other than the emotional <laughs> the emotional lack of trust that happened after that. So, I just became terrified to ride my horse after that, who I'd ridden so much bareback and bridalist to that point. But here's the thing about that. I... I feel like you can train a horse to do all these things, but if you're not training yourself to regulate your own emotions, shit's gonna hit the fan at some point. And I just shouldn't have gotten on. I wouldn't have lost all that trust in her had I not gotten on, but ultimately I saw that it was about losing trust in myself. But really what I learned was that I didn't have trust in myself to begin with. I didn't know that I was experiencing fear that whole time, but after I felt the sting of the fear, and I became more cautious about getting on during days like that, when I just felt that little energetic vibe, that, like, chilliness where you get, like, the goose pimples, and you can call it an intuitive hit, you know, I feel that intuition is accessed all over the body. Think about how complex our nervous system is. It innervates every organ. And we're just learning just how intelligent our GI, our digestive tract is because of all the nerve endings. And so we talk about getting butterflies in our in our stomach, or we talk about getting a pit in our stomach. And that Is our emotions talking to us? If you're not already in your body, I invite you to ask yourself these questions Do you want to be here? Do you want to be here for the parts that aren't just hanging out with horses? Do you truly want to put in the work to feel good in your body? Because for years, I didn't know how good your body could feel. I was just living in a tense, vacant, cold body. I didn't realize that I had to warm up my hands and feet, that I could move in these different ways that felt better on my joints, that I could sit down and breathe into my belly, do the sacrum breathing. If you're in a pattern of dissociating, I think you don't necessarily have to be any type of constitution to dissociate. I think anyone can based on a trauma. If you're in that pattern, just pay attention to how cold you become. So, <clears throat> you might experience that first little vibe of an emotion before it becomes an emotion. And if you're in that cycle of repressing, you go cold, Your fire, it dies down. <clears throat> because you cannot... You cannot let go of that emotion. You cannot transform it yet. You're not done listening to it yet. So you can't let go. So if you can honestly just bear witness to yourself, sit in your body and witness all the uncomfortableness. I know it's really hard, but I don't have that inner monologue saying I don't want to be here anymore. If anything, my inner vo- <laughs> inner monologue says all the things that I'm here for and that I love about my life. I want us to return to our bodies. And also you don't even have to have had a trauma to have left your body. You could simply just not perhaps have your purpose or you could not you could not accept that emotional intelligence is just as valuable as mental intelligence. So, I could get into what I know about us proving the emotional lives of animals and how emotions work in our body, but honestly, I'm at the point where I don't care about the data, I care about the lived experience, and your experience is real, your horse's experience is real, it doesn't matter if it makes sense on paper or not, your experience is real, and don't let anyone make you feel crazy or stupid because you're working on your emotional body language. It really doesn't have to make sense. It just has to it just has to be felt. <laughs> That's the whole range of emotions that you can feel. You can feel love, you can feel fear, you can feel calm, you can feel belonging, you can feel anxiety, trust, anger, rage shame, guilt, did I say anxiety. <laughs> That's a common one for me. So, I will talk about the the places where these emotions live in the body really more in the next episode. But for now, I just want to mention that the elements govern all physiological processes in our body. So understanding the elements is that cascade, I think is helpful. For us to understand how emotions are processed into physical entanglements in the body, how fibroids have a certain quality physically, and how the women who have fibroids have the same emotional picture. This is not woo-woo. This can be documented science. This is honestly Ayurveda. This has been studied for thousands of years and what I find so fascinating because another one of my teachers has a background in traditional Chinese medicine doing acupressure. She talks about the elements in TCM a little bit so I don't know much about the elemental theory in TCM honestly but I do know that they're different from the Ayurvedic elements. So whatever we call them these systems see the same things in the body. They just have different names for it. And this is universal truth because the same things are being talked about, the same things witnessed in cultures on different parts of the planet. And it's thousands of years old. I mean, how how can we logically explain these things other than they were in touch with the universal knowledge that we've sort of put on the back burner because we're prioritizing things that make sense on paper, things that we can prove. And you know what? We cannot prove everything, but we should not have to. One more little lesson here on emotional body language. So, the way that this can really change your horsemanship, I've talked about how emotional body language or body language literacy can change Your self-care can change how you feel in this world, how you feel in your body, but what it can do for your horsemanship, I'm only really just scraping the surface here. One of my most powerful stories on this, working with horses, is when I worked with this young Mustang years ago. She was a weanling and... During the early parts of the gentling process, so she was born wild to a wild mustang mama. And after the weaning, which I have some different thoughts on, and please ask me about if you want to hear them later, but I'm not going to go into the aspects of weaning early on this episode. We're running out of time here. After the weaning for the early part of the gentling process, she was a pretty easy horse, relatively. So I could sit with her, I could pet her. I couldn't touch her everywhere, but I was able to get close enough to get a halter on. And so she, in every other sense, she was so sweet, curious. But when you put the halter and lead rope on oh my god so what we were doing with these weanlings was putting a halter a flat nylon halter on with a short lead rope so that they could kind of feel it dangle around their legs and they weren't in a big space where we wouldn't be able to (coughs) catch them and unhalter them we weren't going to leave it on very long but just to spend an afternoon with the rope and get to know pressure and release And she couldn't get tangled up on anything, so it was safe. But wow, I've never witnessed such a strong reaction in any horse from the rope. Oh my gosh, this little baby became like however many pounds of flying fury. And it was all directed at the rope, and she wanted to kill the rope. It looked like a snake that she was trying to strike and kill. So she would sort of fly and hit the fence in this little twenty four by twenty four corral, and it was terrifying me for her safety and for anyone else's because she lost track of the whole world around her when the rope was there. What was interesting about that I'd never seen a horse do that before, but so I later worked with her half sister, who was the daughter of her same of her mom and You know, she could be groomed, she could be led around a little bit, she could be touched everywhere, but you'd sort of, like, lay the rope on the ground while you were holding the tail end of it, and you'd wiggle the rope, and her eyes would open wide. All of a sudden, it's like she just came back to her body and realized she wasn't safe, and she would strike at the rope as though it was a snake trying to eat her. So, this was definitely a genetic factor in these two babies, There was a very strong sense of survival, but I couldn't make sense of it at the time. We worked with the swainling for a good month, never got her over the halter and the lead rope, which was sad. And more sad to me was that the trainer taking over for us was going to do the thing where you, you rope a leg and you get them to lay down forcibly. And It's been talked about. It's like the horse whisperer thing in the movie. I don't know. I don't remember that part, but I read about it in Linda Kohanov's book, The Tao of Equus. She talks about that in the horse world, how many trainers saw that after the movie came out as like the cure-all for horses that were disobedient, had major behavioral challenges, and they would lay the horse down. After getting back up, the horse would submit, do everything perfectly. The owner's like, oh my god, I can't believe this. It's a changed horse. And it took, I think Kohanov mentioned one of her colleagues, it took her colleague noticing how this was truly a different horse because they would go back out to the pasture and they would almost be shunned by the rest of the herd. And they had sort of lost all of that spark in their eye, if you know what I mean. Like, The way that she put it was they lost the will to live, and that was my aha moment. The horses that were laid down lost their will to live. They lost their will to fight. So, in Ayurveda and TCM, the emotions that live in the body have different organ affinities, and the kidney organ is the will to live. This foal that I'd worked with, who I could never get over the halter, and she was eventually laid down, and later I learned that she, after the laying down experience, she was agreeable. They could do all the things in training that I wasn't able to get done with her, but she had to be euthanized because her kidneys stopped developing as, like, less than a one-year-old. And at the time, when I heard this, I was just in shock and so sad. And I thought, huh, that's really interesting. I wonder if that played a role in her reaction. And of course, these ancient philosophies will tell you that they do. But also, after reading in Linda Kohanov's book about them being laid down and losing that emotional will to live, I went, oh, God in a horse that already had abnormal kidneys, perhaps that strong of an emotional experience, a trauma, really, perhaps that would influence the healthy development of that organ. And so, this might be controversial. I don't know. I just, I'm sick of not seeing emotions get the attention that they deserve, and they don't have to be explained away. They don't have to be proven through data, but what I'm seeing is that animals and humans with the same symptoms physically are having the same emotional experiences. So, yeah, we'll get into mapping as I call it emotional body language out to help this out, but yeah, your takeaway for now kidneys are the will to live, so nourish your kidneys, drink extra electrolytes, keep your will to live strong, and again, returning to your body, returning to your root, that was one of the biggest challenges for me, and where I'm still dealing with physical pain from all of those nasty falls I had as a kid, which could have been worse, honestly, but I think it's just again, so important for us to validate our experiences, that these physical symptoms have emotional baggage. And if we're not paying attention to our own feelings, our own experiences, then we're going to do potentially long-term damage to our bodies or have a really long road of getting those emotions cleared out. And same thing with your animals. Please honor their emotional experiences because they are real. So just tune into your body because it's going to help you identify what other animals are experiencing in theirs. And if you're not dealing with what you're experiencing, then potentially the animals around you are gonna take it on. And we potentially will do an episode on that later, on that phenomenon known as leeching. For now, I am just so happy that you're here with me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And before I go, the bonuses for the herd involved with this episode, I'm gonna be offering an emotional body language chart that breaks down where the emotions live in the body. And that's available to members of the herd. If you want to learn more about joining, visit wildwilling.com/podcast. And then I want to make a note because I've been behind on the other herd offerings as of yet, getting ready to post the herd offering for January, which was about horse medicine from the first episode. So any episode I do myself, I make sure that there's offerings to really explore what I talk about further, so you have some tangible takeaways. And this has been a really fun journey to develop these offerings and, yeah, own my feelings by talking about them out in this world. So thank you for opening your sensory channels to my words. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for listening to these stories on healing and horsemanship. If you're moved by this episode, please rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to help the show grow. This show is supported by The Herd. The Herd offers monthly bonuses for members, including access to a growing content library on all things health, wellness, and horses. Join today at wildwhaling.com slash herd dash membership. And until next time, I wish you harmony in your health and with horses.